Lord Jesus, would you speak to us from your word by the power of your spirit for our good and to the glory of the Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What would it take in your life for you to say, well, with that, everything changes? What would need to happen for you to have that feeling that everything is on a new course? Maybe there's something hanging over you that you haven't been able to deal with, something that is in your past or present or something you're worried about for the future and you feel, well, if only that would change, then everything would change. Maybe there's a relationship, a friendship or something within your family that you feel, if only this could change, then it would be like everything had changed. Everything suddenly would seem more hopeful and more happy. Maybe it's a financial burden or all sorts of other things that go on in our life which can take such significance that it feels like if only that one thing would change, then everything would change. I don't want to make the case today that because of the good news of Jesus Christ, everything has changed. Even those things that we feel still need to change can and in fact are being changed when we bring them to him and trust in the power of what he's done and promises to do and one day will complete. That because of him, everything can change because of this good news. And that has an impact on the way that we live, an impact on the way that how our lives can transform others. When we live out this good news, it changes everything. It's the good news that Jesus Christ, God himself, entered into the earth as one of us, a human, lived the perfect life that we can't live, died in our place on the cross, taking a punishment for our sin, the just punishment for the things we've done wrong or not done, but that he then rose again as new life, sends his Holy Spirit, and when we trust in him, we share in that new life and can have that new life in him forever. That good news changes everything. And I believe that's what we see here in the middle of this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Having spent three chapters uh, saying how grateful he is, how thankful he is, how he prays for them, Paul now gets on to some bits which you might say are more like instruction or at least encouragement to live out this new faith that they found in Jesus. And it's because of that good news that Paul's so thankful for that everything changes. It's because of that good news that we can live increasingly holy and purposeful lives. You see, sometimes I think we're in danger of turning the good news of Jesus into something which sounds like a ticket to heaven or a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because of what Jesus has done, we pop it in our back pocket and then one day we'll die and we'll pull it back out again and we'll say, thank you, I've got a ticket. But that just so impoverishes this good news, this gospel that we have. It reduces Jesus just into somebody who's just useful for us to get where we want to be. It misses the fact that the good news of Jesus is about transformation of our whole life and our eternity to enjoy what we were made to, which is to know God and be with him. It's good news that changes everything and it transforms us in our life, not just in our death. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It is the key to a fully changed and transformed life or life in all its fullness, as Jesus himself said. And as you've heard Anne read that for us, you'll notice that Paul starts to talk about the transformations in life that he would expect to see for people who are trusting in Jesus. And no doubt it stood out to you that the first thing he picked up on was sexuality, issues around sex. The church has often been accused of being obsessed with sex, but actually I don't think it's limited to the church. It is pervasive in all areas of society. 
But Paul writes to them perhaps because it is one of the areas of life which it is hardest to trust God in because uh, the, the sort of the pull of our attractions and our sexuality can have such a powerful hold over us. But Paul is clear and God's word is clear that we need to trust God in this area to find fulfillment in life just as in every other area. That God calls us to trust him because he loves us and because he wants what's best for us. Think of a Formula One car. A car that's designed to go really fast. A car with wonderful low centre of gravity, tremendous acceleration and the ability to take corners on a track at great speeds. It's built and designed to go quickly on a track. But if you take that Formula One car and you put it on an off-road track full of mud and dirt and gravel and bumps, it's not going to get very far. It won't be able to do the thing that it was designed to do. It might speed off, but you'll pretty soon have a crash. You've taken something which was designed to go fast in one place and you've put it in the wrong setting. And so it often is with human sexuality. It's a wonderful, good thing designed to be a great part of what God has made, but it needs to be run and used in the context that God gave it for. That temptation is to try it in different ways, but actually the Bible says that when we do that, we'll end up perhaps eventually crashing. It's about trusting the designer to hear how we've been designed to run at our best. And for Jesus and all those who followed him writing the, the words of the Bible and all that came before, that faithfulness is about a lifelong commitment of two people, a man and a woman in marriage, using it as it was designed to be. It's there in the beginning of Genesis. Jesus himself reiterates that in the Gospels. And here Paul contrasts that view of of commitment and stability and promise which surrounds it with a view where some have just taken and followed their lustful desires. It's become something with no boundaries, no controls. It's simply you do what you feel and live with the consequences later. But if we trust that we've been designed and made and built for a purpose, then we can trust that what God's designed us for and told us that we've been designed for is the way to have fulfillment in life. The good news of trusting Jesus can transform this area of life, whatever our situation, whether we are single or married. When we put this in his hands, we can trust that he wants what's best for us, even if the world around us says that, no, just do what you like, do how you feel. Follow your heart. But actually, we want to, as Christians, I'm sure, follow the designer, the creator, the instructor, the one who tells us how we can live life to all of its fullness. And that's why Paul says what he does here about this and the need for holiness and purity to resist those sort of lustful urges and to use sex for what it was intended for. But please take note of this. This passage is not here to become a finger-pointing exercise. It's here to be a self-examination of our own hearts. This passage was not put in the Bible in order to be a stone to cast first or a tool to try and remove the speck from somebody else's eye. This passage is not about one group of people pointing the finger and accusing another group of people. This passage is about Christians trusting Jesus and examining our own hearts in order that we might live lives which are holy and pleasing to God and ultimately fulfilling to ourselves. This is a call to a distinctive form of holiness for Christians and our response to hearing it should begin with looking inwards to ourselves 
and looking up to the God who loves us. If we want to trust Jesus, then we need to trust him with every area of life, including this one. And if we trust him, we trust that he wants and knows and tells us what is ultimately best for us. Sex, a wonderful gift. A gift to be used in the way that God has given it to us and then to be enjoyed. Not sex which is to be exploited, consumerized, cheapened and sold. Which will ultimately lead to less happiness, less satisfaction, less joy and separation from God. But it is difficult. It is really difficult. And that is probably why Paul goes straight to this in this section of this letter. And if we're honest, we all know that we all make mistakes. No one is righteous, the Bible says, not even one. We all make mistakes, but there is grace and forgiveness bigger than our sin when we turn to Jesus. There is always more grace when we truly turn and repent and ask for his love and help. It's also interesting that in this little section, Paul finishes with a reminder that even within Christian communities, this can be a point of exploitation and even abuse. He says, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And we did a whole service on this just a few months ago in the autumn. It's still there on YouTube. If you missed it or perhaps you've forgotten what we're talking about there, I would really recommend going and watching that again. If you're watching this on YouTube, we'll put a link to it at the very end of the service. It's so important that in this whole area, we're seeking God, trusting him, acknowledging that things can go wrong, but then trying to trust Jesus for the right way forward. And in fact, the church in Thessalonica had got areas of their life right as well. But perhaps they needed to hear that reprimand, that reminder. But actually, Paul goes on in verses 9 to 12 to speak about some of the ways that they are living out the gospel, that it has transformed their life. He says, Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. But even here, Paul urges them to love more and more, to live a quiet life, mind your own business and work with your hands, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. You see how this good news transforms the whole of our life. It makes us into something distinctive, something set apart, something which points to God and his way of living. It should never be a a, a way of looking down on others. Jesus is so clear on that. But it should be a cause for ourselves to inspect our own lives, every area of our life, and ask for God's word and God's Holy Spirit to convict us and shape us and mould us so that our lives are, as Paul says, winning the respect of outsiders and gaining opportunities for the gospel. He calls them to this because living out the good news just makes such a big difference. It changes everything. Every area of life can be handed over to Jesus and say, I find this difficult, Jesus. Please, can I trust this to you? Guide me, show me, help me. The way to do that is to read and trust his word. And the way to do that is to pray and ask for him to show how our lives can be part of something more, something extraordinary. I was talking to somebody recently, in fact, who had been speaking to someone who's not a Christian, but had started to come along to a few things before the lockdown. They'd met uh, one person from our church and they'd been speaking on the phone to at least one other. They'd been going through a really tough time. Something about these people being in contact with them, speaking to them, asking them how they're doing, even when it had been really difficult, reached a point now where actually there's been some wonderful answers to prayer. And even that person himself asking for prayer for them. 
something in those ordinary things that those people were doing, but because they were doing them out of the good news, out of their faith, out of what it is that Jesus had done for them, it made such an impact on this person that they wanted them to pray for them and to be involved in the process of change. It's the wonderful thing about the good news of Jesus. It's not just a ticket to heaven when you die. It is trusting Jesus with every area of life and seeing him at work. It's because of this good news that every area of life can be given over to God, made holy, set apart, not to pull ourselves back, but to be a change and positive difference in the world all around us. It's because of the good news that we can live holy and purposeful lives. Now, I said at the beginning that the gospel changes everything. It's one of those things that when you get it, when you see it, when you believe it, you realize that it changes every area of life. And I said it's not just about a ticket to heaven when we die. But here Paul goes on to say that although it's not just a ticket to heaven when we die, it is also something that not only transforms the way that we live, it also transforms the way that we die. The whole way that we view death ourselves. Because of this good news, We can trust Jesus even with our death. Listen to these words again from verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That is Paul's focus in this section to see how the good news of Jesus transforms everything, including how we understand death. And his hope and our hope can be so concrete, so real, so certain. Because Jesus is alive, those who trust in him will also one day be alive again. Because his grave tomb was empty, so too will ours one day be. Will Jesus return before you or I die? Well, he says himself, we don't know the day or the hour. But he does say to be ready. Don't be like the disciples who were caught by the angel, just gazing up into heaven, waiting for Jesus to come back. They needed a nudging and a prompting to remember that actually their whole life now was to be given over to him. So we too, when we think about this question, are meant to have hope and trust in the return of Jesus, but not to be so obsessed with it that we forget to talk or do anything else. Paul's point here is not to spark a theological debate. It is for these Christians to have a real, concrete hope in life and in death. He finishes this section with these words. Listen to the trust and the hope that he has and ask God that you would share in that same hope. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Death has been in the news a lot more over the last year than it normally has been. But interestingly, that itself is not the anomaly. The anomaly for us mostly in the West in the 20th and 21st centuries, has been that death hasn't really been on the agenda. For most of human history, around most of the world, it has been a far more present reality than we have normally grown up with experiencing. What's happened is that we've had our eyes open once again to the reality of the world ever since the fall. 
that this good world has been spoiled and death is an alien invader. It's painful and it hurts. It's not how things should be. But Paul writes to give them hope that because of the good news of Jesus, not only is their life transformed, but also their hopes for death are transformed as well. As Christians, we recognize death's reality, but we can also deny its finality. And we can think about it as people who trust in Jesus without doom-mongering, scare-mongering, or getting down about it. When we trust it to Jesus, just like our life trusted to him, so too we can trust one day our death to him as well. When we trust in Jesus, we're no longer dead in Adam. We are alive in Christ. I've decided actually what I'm going to put, ask to be put on my gravestone when I die. That's if Jesus doesn't come back first. It's some other words from Paul, not from this letter, but from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says this. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Because of the good news that Jesus lives, we too can live forever. Because of the good news that he's conquered sin and death, our whole life can be transformed into one which is moving towards being like Jesus and one day in death, moving to actually be with him forever. The good news of Jesus transforms our life and it transforms us in death. Death is a horrible intrusion into this good world that God had made. We mustn't downplay that. It's painful. But rising higher, sounding louder, shining even more brightly, is the good news that in Jesus, death is conquered and we can have eternal life in him. As Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's a lot to take in just in these few words. Your good news has such implications for how we live and trying to be holy and follow lives that we trust to you and trust you want what's best for us. And also what it means for us in death, giving us this sure and certain hope because of what Jesus has done when we trust in him, we will have this eternal life too. Lord, would you help our whole lives to be shaped by it, transformed by it. May it make that difference, whether it be in those relationships, on those things that hang over us, on those worries or anxieties, over those fears, those pressures, whatever it might be that we feel, if that would just change and everything would change, well, Lord, help us to see that everything has changed because of what you have done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.